Is there anybody out there? Well, the answer is a definite yes.、Um, not only for listeners, but、uh, also for、uh, a superior being, and、uh, that's if you know where to look, of course. And here on Search for Truth, Brian, our Bible teacher, is looking at four good reasons to believe in God. The last two weeks, Brian's looked at creation and our conscience, both as good reasons. So let's go to Brian now to introduce the subject of communication, and the unique role of the Holy Bible in that setting. Thanks, John. As you know, we've been talking about atheism being indefensible. I wonder how often you've heard someone say that. Probably not very often, or not at all nowadays. But the Bible goes on the offensive in the early chapters of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, which we are featuring in these programs. Twice, very boldly, the Bible says around the end of Romans chapter one that it's those who refuse to acknowledge God who are quite literally in an indefensible position. They are said to be without excuse, meaning they have no defence. Of course, they'd be the last people to think that. This is very far from their perception of reality, as they suppress the truth, having exchanged the truth of God for a lie. For even though they knew God, they no longer see fit to acknowledge God. This exposure by the Bible, because these phrases I've just used are quotations from Romans chapter one, quotations which expose a deep-seated agenda that these people have, showing that even when we're equipped with a good defence, many debates will still not be winnable. Recent outreach experience again has demonstrated this to me. We were out on the streets of a busy shopping centre, engaging passers-by in conversation about Christianity. Aware of how sceptical the mood is in Western Europe in the 21st century, we were challenging the public to demonstrate any meaning in an alternative point of view. Not a few conceded that their outlook was indeed bleak, but they claimed to genuinely feel that there was nothing beyond. The Apostle Paul was no stranger to sceptics, even in the first century. The kind of reasoning, explaining, and giving of evidence which he engaged in—you can look up Acts chapter seventeen, verses two and three—and you'll find those are the expressions and terms that are used to describe Paul's preaching. And that exercise that he was engaged in was also balanced with discernment of the predisposition of the unpersuaded sceptics. But it still resulted, at the end of the day, in some of those in the audience sneering, while others requested a second hearing. And yet others ended up believing. Jesus, in his testimony before Pilate, spoke of those who were on the side of truth. They were the ones to hear his voice. Sometimes our defence will be more about honouring God than winning arguments. Whenever we encounter those whom God Himself has given over to a reprobate or depraved mind, but by the time Paul reaches Romans chapter three, he's not yet done with his audience. He's already presented two important strands of evidence. He's talked about the starry heavens above and the moral law within. Both point to the God who's there. But now, at the beginning of Romans chapter three, the apostle Paul introduces a third supporting strand of evidence, evidence which supports the contention that God exists. Paul asks in Romans chapter three verse one, "Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision?" Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. By oracles, Paul is speaking about God's revelation, especially in its written form, as had been entrusted to the Jewish people in terms of the writings of Moses and the other prophets, as well as the writers of Psalms like King David. 
including now the New Testament, to which Paul himself contributed 13 letters, the completed Bible was written over a period of some 1,600 years and penned by some 40 different individuals over that time. What's more, the Bible contains many predictions. In fact, it's been estimated that at the time of writing, some 25% of the Bible was prophecy. In other words, claims about the future. Now, anyone can make predictions, but having those prophecies fulfilled is something else. What's the chance, for example, of predicting in which city some future world leader is going to be born? Or the exact way in which he's going to meet his death? But this is what the Bible did, hundreds of years in advance of the events. The late Professor Emeritus of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena City College, Peter Stoner, actually calculated the chance or probability of one man fulfilling the major prophecies made in advance in the Bible about the Messiah, Jesus. The estimates were worked out by 12 different classes, which amounted to some 600 university students. Peter Stoner also encouraged other sceptics or scientists to make their own estimates to see if his conclusions were more than fair. Finally, he submitted his figures for review to a committee of the American Scientific Affiliation. Now, for example, what he was doing was this, concerning Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, which says that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. Professor Stoner and his students determined the average population of Bethlehem from the time of the prophet Micah right through to the present. And then they divided that by the average world population over the same period. By expressing that ratio, they calculated that the chance of one particular man being born in Bethlehem was one in 300,000. That's in the same sense as the chance of getting heads in any one flipping of a coin is one in two. So the chance of the prophecy of Jesus being born in Bethlehem coming true on its own was regarded as one in 300,000. Then they examined not one, but eight different Bible prophecies about Jesus, the Messiah. The likelihood of them all being true by chance was found to be so small that we'll have to describe it by means of an illustration. If you make a mark on one out of ten tickets and then place all the tickets in a hat and thoroughly stir them and then ask a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting the one ticket which you've already marked is one chance in ten, one in ten. Now suppose that instead of tickets, we take silver dollar coins, and not just ten of them, but we take a big, big number of coins. Next, let's suppose that we lay all these silver dollars all over the state of Texas in the US until we cover the whole of that state to a depth of two feet, or in other words, to a depth of about 60 centimetres. Now, once again, let's mark just one out of all those silver coins and stir the whole lot of them thoroughly all over the state. And by the way, you may be interested to know that Texas is almost three times the size of the United Kingdom. Once again, we're going to get a blindfolded man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes within Texas, but he must pick up just one silver coin and hope it's the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance, Professor Stoner worked out, that the prophets would have had of writing those eight prophecies 
and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present time, providing they wrote them in their own wisdom alone, assuming God had nothing to do with the Bible. But of course, there are many more than eight prophecies in the Bible. In another calculation, Stoner used 48 prophecies and arrived at the estimate that the probability of 48 prophecies being fulfilled in one person is one chance in an exceedingly large number, a number which is a one followed by 157 zeros. Remember, for the sake of comparison, a one in a million chance is one chance in a number which is a one followed by only six zeros. But here we're talking about one chance in a number which is followed by not six, but 157 zeros. So to all intents and purposes, 48 Bible prophecies have a zero chance of being fulfilled on the basis of blind chance. But even that's the result of only considering 48 of the Bible predictions about the coming Messiah, all of which in fact came true in Jesus of Nazareth hundreds of years later. One Bible expert, Edersheim, reckons there were actually up to 456 different prophecies available for Professor Stoner to select from had he so wished. Obviously, the chance of all this being pure coincidence is vanishingly small. There can really only be one explanation for the Bible. One preacher, R.A. Torrey, put it this way. He said, suppose stones for a temple were brought from quarries in Rutland, Vermont, Berea, Ohio, Casota, Minnesota, Middleton and Connecticut. Each stone was first hewn into its final shape at its own quarry before being transported to the actual temple site. Among the stones was a great variety of sizes and shapes like cubes and cylinders. But when they were all brought together, it turned out that every stone fitted perfectly into its allotted place. What would that show? It would show, Torrey said, that at the back of all these individual quarry workers was a single architectural mastermind. Then he said, it's exactly like that with God's temple of truth, the Bible. How else could some 40 different human authors contribute to this one vast project spanning some 1600 years from start to completion? The marvellous cohesion, the wonderful consistency of the Bible, with its focus on the central picture of Christ, can only mean one thing that behind all those individual human authors, there stands one divine author who masterminded the Bible as his communication to this world.
sent him down my poor soul to redeem. Yes, it was love made him die on the tree. Oh, I am certain that Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves even me. Thanks again for another interesting talk today, Brian. Now, if this subject's raised any issues with you, then please do write in. As usual, there's a transcript booklet available for this series, and again, it's entirely free and we don't share any of your details. So, if you'd like us to send you a copy or copies, uh, perhaps to pass on to friends, then ask for the title, Four Good Reasons to Believe in God. You can contact us by email or by post, and here's the address. Search for Truth, Church of God, Downing Drive, Leicester, LE5, 6LN, UK. And the email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. If you send for the booklets by email, please be sure to include your postal address so we can send you the booklets. Uh, you can also find some past programmes and useful material at www.searchfortruth.org.uk, which is our website. So it's been great to have you with us today, and we'd love to welcome you back again next week if you can join us. But until then, it's our very best wishes from Bible teacher Brian, studio technician David, our singers and me, John. So goodbye for now, and may God richly bless you. Oh, if there's only one song I can sing, when in his beauty I see the great King, this shall my song in eternity be. Oh, what a wonder that Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves even me.